Good morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody joining us online on Zoom. Uh, we are still in our series in the book of Nehemiah. We have a couple weeks left as we get through uh, that book. And then we will start our uh, summer series. Mark will be preaching again on Mother's Day for us. Um, and then uh, we'll start our summer series in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And so you'll want to be reading through those, catching up on those. Uh, 1 Chronicles, the first part of that book is just a real fun read. So you can uh, read that when you're ready to fall asleep at night. And uh, it will help you tremendously. Uh, it's just tons of names and genealogies. Uh, it's important, but... Um, as you read through it, you'll be like, man, there's a lot here um, as, as God keeps his timeline and record. Our series, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, is called Trouble and Disgrace. And um, God's people find themselves in a time when they're facing much trouble and much disgrace. And um, they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this. They're waiting on the Lord. They're waiting for him to do what only he can do. Um, just to give you a little bit of a timeline, because I think the last time, two weeks ago when I preached, I might have gotten you off on the timeline of kind of what's going on. So let me give you a little brief history timeline. It was in 586 that the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Okay? After that, Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon. The reason Babylon gets conquered is because God asked Babylon, he told King Nebuchadnezzar, I will treat you well as long as you treat my people well, but if you don't treat my people well, I'm going to send in another nation to destroy you. Like, I've, I've allowed you to be raised up to discipline my children, but you better do it right. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. As a result of that, he allows the Persians to come in. The Persian Empire, which you probably learned about in your history classes, came in and destroys the Babylons. Cyrus, because he wants to be different than the kings before, which is always what happens, right? A new person comes to power and they start giving away free stuff. It's normal. I want to reward all those people. I want people to like me. So Cyrus decrees to begin construction of the temple in 538. That's the Jewish temple. The temple is completed in 516. There's kind of a mini revival that breaks out because of it, of God's people. And that's 70 years after they go into exile which is what Jeremiah prophesied. And by the way, all these prophecies came true in the Old Testament. Cyrus was prophesied to take over. All these things were like talked about way before they happened, which is one of the reasons why our scriptures are so accurate and true. Because they even gave the names of people before they like took power. The temple's completed, but then Artaxerxes I comes to power. He decrees for Ezra to return to worship, and there's kind of another revival in 457. Now, these dates could be off a little bit. They weren't as concerned about keeping exact dates like we are in our time period. What's important is the flow of the story and what God was doing. And as a result of that, there's kind of another little revival where Ezra comes back. Ezra just keeps getting older. He, he starts out a young man, and by the end, he's like in his 90s, maybe even 100 years old. And then in 545, Artaxerxes I, okay, makes a decree for Nehemiah to return and rebuild the wall. And the wall's rebuilt in 52 days, which we've looked at. And then another revival breaks out among God's people. This is a hundred, roughly about 150 years that we're dealing with here from the time the people go into exile to the time when Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall, which is where we find ourselves right now in the story. Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall. 
They're breaking out in celebration. Revival's happening. They've read the word of God. Last week, Mark talked about what, what they, how their response was. And so this, is, uh, this took 150 years. To put that in perspective, think about where we're at now, and it would be like going back to the time of the Civil War to now. I mean, think about how much has happened in our country's history and what's gone on. And, and that's what we're talking about in this time frame and God's faithfulness through each step of it. The first week, we looked at the fact that Nehemiah mourned and he was strengthened. He mourned over the fact that Jerusalem was in ruins and disgrace. We looked at the fact that he went around the city, he inspected it like a good leader was. He was given permission by the king to go back and rebuild. We talked about how that happened. It was a miracle of God. Nehemiah was a slave. All God's people were slaves to the Persian Empire. They find themselves in slavery. And God lays some things on Nehemiah's heart, but he doesn't just run out and do an advertising campaign. He, he prays. He begins to talk to the leaders. He begins to announce, we need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then he looks at them, and after they start rebuilding, they've got problems. Just like any time you're trying to build something, you run into issues, you run into problems, and they begin to be attacked by the foreign nation. He tells them, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, your wives and homes. So he tells them to, to, be, in, to be afraid of God, to, to respond to God by, by looking at the people around you and saying, I'm not afraid of this pandemic. I'm not afraid of the things that I see around me. Because I know God, and I know his plan, and I know how he works, and I know that people are born and they die. And he says, remember, and then respond properly. And the people respond well, and they, they get back to work. Then the wall is completed, and they recognize that it was done in 52 days, and it was a miracle. And they all say, this, this had to be accomplished by God, even though each of them was required to build the wall in front of their house and and protect their family. Like even though they had to work really hard at the end of all their hard work, they didn't take credit. They as a nation said this could only happen because of our God, which is pretty amazing because that's typically not how we see things. Then the people find that God is their joy and their stronghold. They start weeping because they recognize as they read the word of God again, they bring out the word. Ezra in his old age is reading the word and they respond and they're broken and they're weeping and the priests and the leaders have to pause for a minute and go, man, this is awesome what's happening, but we need to encourage them because they have the right response in their heart of brokenness. So we need to tell them to have joy, to remember that God is your stronghold. He's not trying to make you feel like you're nothing. He's trying to show you that without him, he, you are nothing. But with him, you have everything. And then Mark did a great job last week of talking about the fact that as the people began to think about their story and they thought about as the word was being read to them, they thought about all those stories that in their mind they begin to think, but nevertheless in your great mercies you did not make an end of us or forsake us for you are a gracious and merciful God. But God is gracious and merciful when we deserve nothing and we have to choose how we're gonna respond to that. This week, here we are. <laughs> here you are. Here you are online. Here you are sitting here. Here we are in our country right now. It's 2021. We're still wearing masks. We got vaccines. We got all kinds of things. 
We're still passing out money we don't have. Like, here we are, right? Now, what is our response to that? What is the response to the recognition of recognizing exactly where you are? Remember where the people are at this point. Even though God has done all of this, they've rebuilt the walls, they have a temple, a revival's broken out. They're still slaves of the Persians. Let me say that again. Even though all these things have happened, and it's great, and it's wonderful, at the end of the day, when they look at where they are, the reality is they are still stuck as slaves to the Persian Empire. They're stuck. They can't get out. God hasn't called them to raise up and overthrow the Persians, and they got to live in the middle of it. They got to live with the reality that they may have built this temple and built these walls, and Artaxerxes I may die, a new guy come in and completely annihilate them because he just doesn't like them. They are living in that reality every moment of the day. And so they look at that, they look at their God, and they say, Here we are, but here's the key thing. They recognize as soon as they ask that question, Here we are because of our sin. Not here we are because we're so awesome and we fight so, fought so well and we built this wall and we, we went out and got the wood and we built, look at all we did. They had to have permission to do all of that by the king. They were slaves. And they recognized that we're really where we are. We're in the mess we're in, even with the blessings, because of our sin. And the reason God has been good to us is not because we're without sin and we're so awesome. He's been good to us to show the world how he treats people. He still loves them. He still cares for them. He still wants them to see who he is in the midst of where they are. I don't know where you are right now. God does. I mean, sure, you're in Bloomington. You're here this morning. You're online. You, for those of you online, I have no clue where you are. You could be in your car watching this. Don't do that. Pull over. Anyway, I mean, I, I don't know where you are, but here's the deal. He does, and he's trying to get us to just back up for a minute and see that, that we live with a DNA of sin, that Adam has found to us that DNA of sin. And notice the word there is not because of sin. It's because of our sin. Even not be really in, now maybe you're really walking with God, guess what? You're still suffering the consequences of the sin of people around you every single day. And you'll never get away from it until Christ comes back and reigns again on the earth. It's a collective agreement to say, I recognize we are where we are because of our sin. And I recognize that I am where I am or we are where we are because there's a God that sees our sin and wiped it away and said, I'm still going to allow you to live. I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to forgive you. That's the beauty of where the people find themselves. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 9. Mark touched on this last week in verse 36. It says, here we are today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because. Now I stop it because. Here's why. We just got done doing our taxes. We got the privilege. Abundant harvest to the kings. So then, like, here, here you get yours, right? Like, and we celebrated that, right? Not really. 
I mean, it was kind of crazy that the government sent us, you know, stimulus checks that we could just send back to them. I thought that was kind of funny. Like, oh, here, have it back, you know. But here we are, and it says they recognize they're slaves. They recognize they're in a mess. They recognize that the things they work for just get taken away. I don't know about you, but the first job I ever got, right, you think you're going to get that big paycheck, and then it comes, and you're like, wait a minute, what What happened? And then you look, oh, Medicare, Social Security, federal, state. They took a lot of money, right? I hope I get that back. And then sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Here we are. And here's the key. It's the because that matters. We're in a nation right now that wants to blame everybody else for where they are. Well, it's my parents' fault. It's our nation's fault. It's Bloomington's fault. It's the mayor's fault. It's police department's fault. We, we want to put blame on everybody except ourselves. The church wants to put blame on everything, wants to blame our culture and our world and Satan and everything else, not embrace that the church is the one that has made most of these compromises that people are now buying into. See, God's people in this moment could have said, well, we're in this mess, God, because you don't care about us. You don't love us. We're in this mess because of our dumb forefathers and they're idiots. And they could have done any of that, but what do they say? They look and they say, nope, we're in this mess because of our sins. I own it. Us. We own where we are. And then it says they rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress, trouble and distress. They've rebuilt their city walls. They've got their temple, but they pause. They know that God has been gracious and merciful. But in the end of all of that, they still live with the reality, I'm stuck here. And that's where we are. In a relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus says that the second we come to know him and invite him in, we become a new creation. That we have a new citizenship in heaven and that it's guaranteed by him. We are now citizens of heaven, but he asks us to stay here to represent him. Knowing that we're going to have to deal with our flesh and our sin, he recognizes. So how do we respond? Do we just separate ourselves and, and leave and, well, I'm going to get away from all these sinful people. If you try to get away from all the sinful people, you're not going to have anyone in your life. Because they're all sinful. I got to try to get away from anything that could make me impure. Everything's impure. Our air is impure. Stop breathing. See how that goes. Like, they take a moment to recognize the reality of where they are and recognize I own it. I'm going to take responsibility to tell my children, my grandchildren, the people around me, and how merciful God is and how responsible we are to love him, to follow him, and make him known in our world. And to not promise people that you'll get out if you just become a Jew. If you become a Jew, you won't be a slave anymore. Nope. He goes on, he says this. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Wow. This isn't like what you and I do, right? 
Well, God, if you just get me out of this situation, well, then I'll go to church next week. Uh, then I'll be better. Like, if you just take care of this, then I'll do this. Like, we're not talking about, like, some simple, we're talking about they're going to sit down, and when you chapters we're going through, they write everybody's name down. Like, it's written. They know you. You signed on. There is no question that you made this binding agreement, and you said to everyone, hold me accountable to my sin. Help me repent. Help me walk with God. That's, that's what this binding agreement, listen, that is not the response that we have in our nation. Most churches are trying to get people to respond by, you just need to be free, you need to push back, you need to not listen. You, not, you need to surrender more of yourself. Put your name on the dotted line to be held more accountable. And that's exactly what their response is because they know how gracious and merciful God has been to them. They know that they don't deserve that grace and mercy. And so their response is to say, we want to declare to the world, declare to our sons, daughters, grandchildren for generations, we're still reading these guys' names. Which means their great, 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 great grandchildren, their parents, former parents, their, their relatives' names, who said, we want to follow our God, and you can hold us to account. But see, what's great about this is that they're making a covenant, but see, God made a covenant and promised a covenant that would be better than a covenant of us just writing on parchment paper, right? Just paper disappears. It's amazing that we have it preserved that's the miracle of the Bible. But see, God told, said in Jeremiah, before the people were going into captivity, that first date I listed, when they were going into Babylon, God had Jeremiah prophesy a covenant that would come from him. Hebrews repeats that covenant. Paul, probably the author of Hebrews, repeats in Hebrews 8 the exact words of Jeremiah. And he says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Listen, we are of the house of Israel and Judah. We've been adopted in, grafted in, the Bible says, to God's family. That Abraham was saved by faith in God's ability to someday save him. You are saved by faith. I am saved by faith in my belief in God's ability to someday save me. I don't know if he will or not. I haven't gotten there yet. Pretty sure he will because he said he would because Jesus paid the price for me. Abraham knew he couldn't pay the price. He knew that one would come after him to pay the price. That's what we learn about in Hebrews. And so he's writing and he says, this covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the land they find themselves in in Nehemiah. That's the promised land, Jerusalem. A covenant they broke even though I had married them. He goes, I gave my very self to them. I made a marriage covenant with them, and they told me to stick it. And even though they broke it, I am still going to do everything I can to renew the relationship with them, because that's the kind of God that I am. And he says, they broke every they broke every covenant. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. This is the covenant. He says, not that you will make, but that I will make. See, they're renewing the covenant that God said he wanted to have. 
They're writing it down. They're saying, we agree to what you've already said. We agree that you are God. We agree that the things you said are true. We're agreeing with your ability to save us. No more us trying to save ourselves. And we'll even live in slavery because we're just so grateful you love us and care for us. That's what they're doing. It's the same thing for us. That we recognize our sin and God says, because of your sin, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to pay for it. He goes on and says this, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts, not on paper. I'm going to write it on your very heart and I will be their God and they will be my people. You know, if you don't have a desire to, to want to know him, and to, to know his word and who he is in his word, to discover who God is and, and what he says about man and what he says about you. And if you don't have a desire for that, man, why? Because that's the covenant he wants. He wants to take the teaching of the Bible and not just have it be words on a page. The response that these people are having where they read it and they're like, oh, this shows us who you are. This shows us our need for you. This shows us how we can represent you as slaves to a foreign nation by just obeying you. So that maybe they can be saved and see how great you are. It's this, God says one day I'm going to become so intimate with you that it's not just going to be this instance. We're going to be a body. We're going to be one together, he says. And he has made that covenant, just not yet. It's the already, but not yet. That God has already forgiven us. God has already knows where we are. He already knows about our sin. He forgives us, but, but we're not fully there yet. And living in the tension of the already, but not yet, is where people have lived since Adam and Eve sinned the first time, and they were covered by God. And he said, I will bring you to me again. And they had to trust him. It goes on in Nehemiah, and it says this in 10, 1 through 27. We're not going to read all of it, don't worry. These are some things from that section that says this. Those whose seals were on the document were, all of these people are putting their family seal on the document. You know that when you swipe or you put your little chip in the credit card system and they make you sign, you realize that when you sign that, there's a little thing at the bottom that says, I agree, like I'm making a covenant. I agree to pay this. Like, that's what you're doing every time you sign. That's, that's what you're agreeing to, right? And so here they are putting their signature, their seal, and it says the governor did it, the priest did it, the Levites did it, the leaders of the people did it. Everybody's in. All the leaders are like, we seal it, we, you can hold us accountable, we're... If you see something, you confront us. Like All of them are, are binding one another to this agreement. They're holding one another accountable to the covenant of God, who he is, and what he wants to do in the world. So that when they make this seal, their life's not going to get better. They're slaves in Persia. It's not like they're making this deal with God because, oh, well, now things are going to go so much better for us. Maybe not. They're doing it because they actually believe who God is, that he is gracious and merciful and he holds people's sin to account and they are saying we want to acknowledge that's who you are so that the nations around us can know that you are God and their gods are false. In Revelation, when we get to the end of God's story, when Jesus 
comes back and when the things of Revelation begin to unfold. In 5.2 it says, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? You see, when we come to know Jesus Christ, our name is written in the book of life. It's sealed. That's what the second part of 2127 says. Nothing profane will ever enter Jerusalem again. See, they're making a covenant saying we don't want profane things to enter Jerusalem. We want, to, we want God to be glorified. Well, they fail. They're going to fail again and again and again. We fail. This is the new temple right? The heart. God writes it on our hearts. This is the new temple of God and we fail and God still comes in and cleans up his temple and starts over again and gives us a chance. How many revivals did I list? Three. Revivals that happened under Ezra. (laughs) Because the people would, yeah! I mean, they were like schizophrenic and God was still gracious and merciful to them. And so he says, nothing profane will enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. When we say, I, God, I surrender, I'm yours. Please save me. I, I'm done. You are God. I am not. Your name is written down and sealed. And I don't know, neither do you, no angels know, no whose name's really in the book and whose except the one who can open the seals, Jesus. They're gonna be, we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be surprised by some people that are there, and we're going to be shocked at some people who aren't there. The Bible's clear on that. I don't tell you that to scare you. I don't tell you that because I'm trying to manipulate your emotions. It's just the truth. That Jesus said that there are going to be those that say, Lord, Lord, when did we do these things? When did we respond to you? And he's going to say, every time you did a little thing, that was you following me. And then there are going to be those that say, look at all we did. And he's going to be, you did all of that for yourself. It wasn't for me, even though you put my name on it. He doesn't say that to scare us. He says that to us because that's just the truth. And there are these seals that are there and they're writing, they're sealed down. We have the names written. We're able to read the seal of the old covenant, but someday he's going to open those seals. And like we're going to see in Nehemiah, there is a party that breaks out in heaven when the seals are open. There is a party that's like, yes, finally, all of human history has been waiting for this moment. The seals are open. The angels are going nuts. It is a party like none other. And we see that that's the response of the people in Nehemiah. It even goes on to say this, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with their wives, sons, daughters, everyone everyone who was able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and carefully obey all the commands, ordinance, and statutes of Yahweh our Lord. Every person that was able to understand, that means there were people that couldn't understand, that didn't get it. Because understanding is given by God. Because of our fear, it says the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding is the fear of the Lord. So there were probably those that didn't truly fear him. That didn't really recognize that we're here because of our sin. They're still in that blame game where they're sitting here saying, well, I am where I am because... And his sin and his sin. And God says, look, 
Anybody who was able to understand is like, I want my name in the book of life. I want my name written down for my children to know. I want to follow. I want them to know I'm trying to follow God. I want them to know I believe the truth about the Bible. I want them to know that I'm in. So many of us as Christians run around afraid that people will find out that we're a Christ follower. And what will they think? And will it cost me my job? Job? Will it cost me my grade in a class? We're so afraid to let people know that we're separate, we're different. We're still slaves. We actually don't have better rights. We have worse rights. Because <laughs> we surrender more of ourselves. And if you're a leader, it means you surrender more and more of yourself, the Bible says. And he said they separated themselves from the surrounding people. Let me tell you, separating themselves from the surrounding people did not mean that they didn't talk to them. It doesn't mean they didn't trade with them. It doesn't mean they didn't know them. Separating themselves, really what it meant was separating yourself from the influence that they had over you. That we're not going to allow them to have influence in our lives to disobey God and not follow him. This wasn't a we're going to separate ourselves. They couldn't separate themselves. You want to know why? They were slaves. You can't separate yourself from a master who says, "Uh, you're my slave, you do what I tell you. You can't go, well, I'm separated. That doesn't work. And so they know that they're separating themselves in their heart. They're saying, you know what, I can't, and that's okay. I may have to go into the Shadrach, Abednego, and if I die, I die. That's what Daniel said when he was thrown in the lion's den. If I die, I die. I'm not going to turn my back on my God just for an earthly benefit. I'm going to separate myself for his salvation because I know none of you have salvation. It's exactly what they're getting. This is what Jesus said in John 13. He said, children, I'm with you for a little while longer. Like, you're going to be in Jerusalem a little while longer. Like, again, Jerusalem gets destroyed again. The temple's destroyed again. It's rebuilt and then destroyed again. (laughs) And he says... You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I tell you, I give you a new command. That's the command, that's the covenant, the new covenant. Jeremiah, he says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love for one another is holding one another accountable because we love each other. It's giving people the grace to change. Not, you better do what I tell you or else. It's saying, I'm going to give you the space, but I am not compromising. We went and visited a university, did a university visit on Friday. Very impressed with this Christian university that we went to. I went up and asked one of the main admissions guys, because the question came up in the parent session and the kids session about sexuality and the university's stance on sexuality. And in the meeting, I thought they did a pretty good job, but it wasn't quite as strong as I would have hoped from the platform. It was good. They didn't say anything wrong. So I went up to the admissions guy, and I asked him, I said, hey, look, I just need to know the truth. I didn't tell him I was a pastor. I didn't tell him. I just said, I need to know where you stand on sexuality and God's view of marriage as a university. And he looked at me, and he said, here's where we stand. We stand that marriage and sex is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's the only proper context. Anything outside of that is sin. He said, however, we do extend grace 
to some of those students who might come to our university knowing our stance and try to help them walk through that and heal and get out on the other side better. I looked at him and I said, thank you. That's a great answer. (laughs) That's this kind of heart where we're going to call sin, sin, but we're going to give people the grace. He's looking, Jesus saying, I'm giving you a new command. And it actually isn't a new command. If If you look up the word there that's used in the Greek, it's a word that can also be used to mean refreshed. I give you a refreshing, a a refreshed command, right? And the refreshed command is love God and love people. By the way, that's the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are love God. The last six of the Ten Commandments are here's how you love people. This isn't like some new, oh, it's a totally new commandment that doesn't have any application to the God's like, no, I'm giving it to you new, fresh. I'm giving you a new spirit inside of you to obey it. And then he says, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Listen, we've got to be careful with the way we love. Because when you read things in the Bible that talk about one another or brother and sister, that is a different kind of love than your neighborly love. There's two different kinds of loves. There there just are in Scripture. And so when when Jesus is saying, like when he says, you know, you need to love your neighbor, loving your neighbor is different than loving your brother. Your neighbor is not saved. You can't appeal to your neighbor based in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can appeal to your brother and sister in the power of the Holy Spirit and call them to the covenant they've made. You can't do that with your neighbor. You have to call them to the covenant first. You can talk about sin, but if they don't know Jesus, why are you expecting them not to sin? They don't have the power not to sin. It's a miracle if they're not sinning. And you should look at them and be like, I'm amazed you haven't killed somebody. That's the difference in Jesus. Look at what Peter says. Where are you going? (laughs) Here we are. (laughs) Like Peter's like, wait a minute. So you're going. That means we're here. So here we are. Where are you going? (laughs) Like, I want to go where you are. I don't want to stay here. I want to go where you're going. Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. I love that. Jesus says, it's already guaranteed, Peter, just not yet. I'm going to go out ahead. I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then one day I'm going to call you to be with me, and I've asked you to stay where you are as my servant, as my slave, to make me known to the people around you. The same thing the people in Nehemiah were having to deal deal with. 1029 says they joined with their noble brothers and committed themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law. That's what we read a minute ago. Through the God's servant, Moses, and carefully obey all the commands, ordinance, and statutes of Yahweh our Lord. And then look at what they do. The next thing, so they're making this renewed covenant, and check this out. It's the four T's, time, or treasure, time, talent, and testimonies. They're working through the four T's, and the first thing they recognize that is a problem for them, as soon as they look at the laws, ordinances, and statutes of God, this is the first major concern they have. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. We live in a culture today where most Christian parents don't care who their kids date. Matter of fact, a lot of Christian parents will allow their kids to practice missional dating. Well, I'm going to let you date whoever so you can, 
Maybe we'll reach that lost young man to come in. Listen, I'm not saying that can't sometimes work by the grace of God, because even in the midst of our stupidity and sin, God still does some amazing things. Praise him, right? But their first concern when they get ready to follow God is they realized we have not raised our kids well. We have not set them up well for the promise of marriage and the promise of relationships the way God's designed it. And we will stop it. We're gonna do something different. We're not gonna give our sons and daughters willingly into those relationships. We're gonna take a stand. You need to know who Christ is if you're going to be with my daughter. You need to know. Otherwise, I can't bless it. I can't put my stamp on it. Well, what if my kid doesn't know Jesus? Then don't put your stamp, just look at her and be like, you need to know Christ. This, is, this could not have worked out well. This is their first concern that they bring up. And for us, most of the time, it's our last. We're concerned about, well, do they have a job? Nice to people? Are they well-liked? Are they smart? Are they pretty? We're concerned about all the other things, but then when it comes to relationships, so often we're like, well, they just got to figure it out. That's the most important thing. When you make a marriage covenant, God expects it to be kept. In the New Testament, he tells people that are married to unbelievers that if the unbelievers will stay with you, you are to stay with them. Because people were coming to Christ and then saying, well, they're not a believer, so I can leave, right? No, you're now their slave to serve them until they come to know Christ. That's what Nehemiah and the people are declaring in this moment. That is a hard teaching. But it's scriptural. Does that mean we don't deal with abuse or problems? Not at all. But it means we recognize what God says. And then it says in verse 31, when the surrounding peoples... So now they're first, they deal with relationships. Their ultimate treasure is to find the one, right? That's the ultimate treasure of every person, to find that one person that I'm going to be with. So that's their ultimate treasure. Then they go to their next thing, their treasure, and they say, when the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath, now they're including time in their treasure, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year, and we will cancel every debt. They're like, do money God's way, in his land. Now, we don't live in the promised land, okay? We don't. We don't live in the promised land. We have to make decisions about how we're going to move in and out of the fact that we live in slavery. If you're a slave in Persia, and you are under the authority of your master, and your master says you need to buy and sell on Sunday, guess what? You don't have an option, because you're a slave, Maybe he'll respect you and give you the option to not have to do that one day, but at that point, you can't just say, well, I forget you. That, no. You can look at him and say, I would rather not do that, but you're my master, and so I will do what you ask me to do. And they look and they say, okay, and think about this, guys. I won't say it yet. I'll hold on. So here's what happens. In, in Matthew, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. <laughs> that's year of jubilee type stuff. That, that's forgive debts. One of the biggest fights we're having in our culture is the way we do money. We will not do money the way God asks us to do money. We just refuse to do it. We refuse to own the decisions that we make about money. We want someone to bail us out every time. 
And God is like, my people will own, even when they're in a mess, even when their kings are stealing their harvest, which they said was happening, even when they're having to pay all these taxes, my, my people will still honor me in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of the mess. Look at what they, they go on to say. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. I love this. We love imposing commands on other people, right? We want to say... You need to do this to them and this to them and this to them. These people are saying, we don't care what any of the leaders do. We're going to put the commands on us. We're going to choose to obey God. And he says, we're going to give an eighth of any ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our Lord. That was commanded in the Old Testament. The bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and the new moon offering, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel, all the work of the house of our God. They're already slaves having almost everything taken, taken from them and they're like, and we still want to give all the tithes and offerings we can to our God that he's commanded us to give. Good luck with that in our culture. Giving has plummeted over time and in the church, it's no better. Everybody looking to get, not give. And here, these people are like, we're going to put... We are feeling it. And so if you see me not doing it, you're call me out. Go get the leaders. Tell what supposed to be doing. I'm concerned for him. Something's wrong. Something's happened. Let's go check on Matt. Not shoot him because he's not tithing. That's not what it means. It means we inspect and we ask. And they're like, this is a lot of offerings. Did you see all the offerings on there? That's a lot of giving. And they're willingly doing it because they recognize we are where we are because of our sin and we want to represent our God. And while everybody else to cheat Persia out of their money and is trying to use their God to manipulate Persia, we're just going to obey our God and we're going to obey Persia and we'll let the cards fall where they fall. That's amazing. He goes on and he says this in Nehemiah, it says, we have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral houses at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house and to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We'll bring the first fruits of our land and every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our li of our livestock as prescribed by the law. And we will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. They're not done yet. <laughs> They're not done getting excited about obeying their God and showing the other nations that our God's more worthy than any of yours because you're trying to cheat your God's and we'll give him everything he demands because everything he's been so gracious and merciful to us. What a, what a heart change is happening in God's people in this moment. And it's because they recognize where they are. They recognize their situation and they give him full credit for their response. It says they've cast lots. They've 
done what they're supposed to do. And it says, we will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priest at the storehouse, storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings of every fruit tree and of the new wine and oil. A tenth of the land's produce belong to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. The priest of Aaronic descent may accompany the Levites when they collect the tenths, and the Levites may take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. They're going door to door collecting. <laughs> Can you imagine a church today doing that, like knocking on your door? Hello, it's FX Church. Uh, you know you are a member. Um, could you please give me your tithe? Like we've been waiting. And they're saying, with sign, put my name on the line. I want, I want that. I want you to come to my house and knock on the door, and I'll give it to you. I, I'm in. They're willingly doing this, knowing they're slaves, and they're already having everything taken from them, and they want to give more. Because they understand who God is and they understand how disobedient they've been and they understand that their children have got to see a picture of God that's different than 150 years ago when they went into slavery. He goes on, he says, For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of the grain, new wine, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles are kept and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers. And we will not neglect the house of our God. We won't neglect it. Let me ask you, remember, the house of God has been moved. The house of God is no longer a temple in Jerusalem. It's the human heart. And where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I am there. The house of God is the body of Christ. It's the local church gathered together. That is the house of God. That is where he decides. Now, what is our response to that? To try to keep as much as we can or to give and serve one another with as much as we can? That's what this gets to. And how does the church model? I was talking again to someone this weekend and talking about our giving. And I said, you know, we just started out as a church modeling that we would give a tenth of every dollar that came in outside of ourselves. And then we'd give 5% above that outside of ourselves. We give tithes and offerings because God says we should give tithes and offerings. It's been the pattern of his people all the way back to Melchizedek when Abraham gave him a tenth. We'll model it too. And you know what? That's costly. We're meeting in a rented space. We all work other jobs as staff. It'd be great to keep that tenth for something else. We're not going to do it. I could be wrong. I'm not saying that a church that doesn't do that is evil. I just want to look at Scripture and go, God, that's what you said your people to do for thousands of years. I don't see that you said not to do it in the New Testament. So we'll keep doing it. And we'll model it so that when people bring their gifts to the storehouse, they can look and say, well, my church is sending those out, not we're keeping it. He goes on, he says this in Nehemiah. He says, now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. They're moving moving for the purpose of God. Do you know how hard it is to move as a slave in a foreign empire? You gotta get a lot of permissions. That takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of dealing. And they're saying, we'll give up whatever we've built. We'll give up whatever benefits we have because we understand that God needs people here to serve. And so there are those that are sent out and there are those who stay to send out. And there are men saying, we will stay here so that we can be the ones that take care of the people when they come and send them out. On Friday night, it was amazing to me. We got to eat dinner with Daniel and Jesse, who used to be a part of our church. 
was from Taiwan. His parents are from Taiwan, moved to Canada. Jesse is from mainland China. If you know anything about Taiwan and China, they have been at war. They do not have peace between the two countries. They don't fight each other necessarily because it would cause bigger global conflicts, but they don't care for one another because the Chinese government left and fled to Taiwan, and that's when Mao Zedong came in and took over in China and brought up communism. And so Taiwan is democratic, and China is socialist communist, and they've always been at war. And I'm sitting at this table with these two people that are from Taiwan and China. I'm like, you guys are like peace sitting at the table. Like, it's amazing how God brought you together in Germany because that's where they went to study together. And as I'm sitting there talking to Daniel and Jesse, it was just amazing for me to hear him say how grateful he was for the time he spent here and how it prepared him to be sent out and now how he disciples and mentors young people that come to his college because he's a professor. One of those kids we met, she was our tour guide. His name, she was like, I was so terrified of him. And we're like, terrified of Daniel? Like, he's the most nicest human being you'll ever meet in your life. Most polite. I mean, and, and she's like, yeah, because he was so nice and polite. Like, because she was the opposite of that. She's like, you know, crazy everywhere lady, you know. Like, that's her personality, which makes a great tour guide, by the way. But Daniel's like this real calm. She's like, I was so intimidated, but he was so kind and nice, and he helped me to learn, and he loved me, and he prayed for Like, it was just this beautiful moment of me sitting at Daniel's table. He's saying thank you, and me saying thank you. Look at this young girl that you've helped raise up. And, like, I'm watching the church work, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> this is why we do what we do. That there are those of you who have stayed. Thank you. I appreciate that. And there are those that have left being sent out. And it's a beautiful thing when it's done by the Lord. It goes on, it says, these are the heads of the provinces who stayed in Jerusalem. But in the village of Judah, each lived on his own property in their towns. The Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants. While some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. Again, they let God tell them where to live. And then again, they listed all those people. These are the priests and Levites who went up. These were the leaders of the priests and their relatives in the days of this time. The leaders of the priestly families were. And they list out who the leaders are. They list out what they've done. They list it out and say, we are committed to doing things God's way. In the New Testament, Peter has something to say that's very similar to this. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the message and they were destined for this. He's talking about Jesus being the rock that people stumble over like the temple was the place that people stumbled over their sin. And he says, but you, but you, that's plural you, not singular you. You, as in the body of Christ, the people of God, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You know, everybody loves to talk about the priesthood of believers until it starts costing them because priests have to do work. We all want to believe in the priesthood of believers, but when you read what the priests are doing here, you're like, well, I don't want that job. You don't have an option. When you trust Christ, he brings you and says, you are now one of my representatives and priests to my family and to the world. That's your job now. A holy nation a people for his possession, so, so that, look at this, 
Why has he done all that? Because he really likes us? Because we're awesome? Because we're beautiful? Because we're lovely? No. He's done it so that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received Dear friends, I urge you. He's urging them just like they did in Nehemiah. As strangers and temporary residents. You're slaves in Persia. To abstain from the fleshly desires that are at war within you. That we have these desires that war in us. Well, I want to marry this guy. I want this kind of financial life. I want that. I want that. And he's like, you got to go to battle against that in your heart. And you need other people to help you go to battle so that you walk with God and you're prepared to do what he wants you to do. Peter says, if you will go to if you'll fight in your heart for the truths of God, it says... Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's those that aren't grafted in or been adopted to Abraham. So then in the case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, someday God's going to come in, give them an opportunity to come, and he's going to convict them, and hopefully they remember you. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, not because it works out better for your tax base. Whether the emperor as the supreme authority or the governors or those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God that will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. You talk about a popular verse in Nehemiah's day, just as unpopular today. So let me get this straight. I'm going to make all these deals. I'm going to sign this covenant. I'm going to do all this, and it's not. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So I'm going to wear this mask. I'm going to separate myself, and I'm going to find out it was all fake. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. What's your heart? Why do you do what you do? Is it to conduct yourselves honorably so that people might come to know Christ? Or is it because you're trying to prove something that doesn't need to be proved? Because God proves himself. Look at what he says. This is key. As God's slaves live as free people. What in Jerusalem at this time? As slaves, they're choosing to live in the freedom of God's love and commands and the freedom of what he's given them in the land that they didn't deserve. Don't freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone. Everyone has been created in the image of God and recognize that. Have special love for the brotherhood. Fear God as you're doing that so that he gets first place. Oh, and by the way, honor the terrible emperor we have. And he's talking about Emperor Nero when he writes this. One of the worst Roman emperors ever who was killing Christians for fun, for sport. And he said, reason God has him there. Nehemiah goes on, he says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbal, harps, and lyres. Verse 30, after the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah on top of the wall and I appointed two large processions that gave thanks. They went in opposite directions. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left and I followed it. 
With the half the people along the top of the wall, the two thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God. So did I and the half of the officials that accompanied me, as well as the priest. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. Can you imagine being a slave of Persia and wondering, why are these stupid slaves so happy? I mean, it's heard far away. They're, they're giving such thanksgiving in the midst of a terrible moment. They just admitted our sins got us here. They know we're not worthy. They know they're still slaves, and they're having the biggest party possibly ever in Scripture other than when Revelation happens. I mean, they're just like, we are so thankful that God has done anything for us, that we get to be in this place, that we get a warm space, that we're protected. Like, I'm just, I got so much gratitude, I don't know what to do with it. Do you struggle with that? Because I know I do. And so many Christians and so many Christian leaders are not calling us to a thanksgiving life. It's just more complaining about this, that, or the other thing. And I get trapped in it so often. God says, no, when you get it, you'll give thanks. And then it says, on the same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms that the house housed the supplies, contribution, first fruits, and tents. The legally required portions of the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. They were grateful. It wasn't, well, we have to because God said so. No, we want to give. We want to support one another. We want to send you out as priests. We want to help you be a priest for God. We want to participate with one another. Then it says, they performed the service of their God and the service of purification along with the singers, gatekeepers, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed for long ago, long ago. In the days of David and Aspah, there were leaders of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. That's the whole book of Psalms that was written. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for the descendants of Aaron. They're like, we just want to take care of one another. We want to do what God's asked us to do, and this is hard work, and it's what we do. It's how we challenge one another. This is beautiful, that they understand, right, this is where we are. Here we are, and we're here because of our sin, but our response is to give gratitude because you haven't treated us like the people stuck where we are who have their sin on them because our sin has been taken off. As it wraps up, here's what they do. I love this. As they wrap up this part of the book, as they go into chapter 13, they're having this big party, there's Thanksgiving, and they don't grow weary. They pull out the book. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. They wanted it read again and again and again. I want to know what God says about himself. I want to know what God says about people. I want to know what God says about me. I want, I want to know what, who he is and what he has said. I want to know him. And they bring out the book, and then they find another command that was written, and now they have to make a choice, and it's a hard one. And we'll look at that next week. That again, they find themselves, here we are. Now what is the choice we're going to make? I don't know where you find yourself this morning. But when you think of the words, here we are, here I am, can I just tell you, God sees you right where you are. 
We looked at it last week in chapter 9. He offers his graciousness and his mercy because he is a God that is fearfully awesome. And he is a righteous judge, but he has poured out that judgment on his son. And he has given us his law. He's given us his word his, because he loves us to love God and love people. He's done that on our behalf. And my, I just ask you, will you respond to God the way they did? Will you be willing to respond like the people of God did in their day in the midst of their terrible circumstances? Because if you are, that's the beauty that rejoices in heaven when the seals are open and they begin to tell the works of the saints and what you and I have done in the name of Christ and it is read before heaven and the rejoicing and the thanksgiving is given not because we've earned anything but it's like, wow, you did this through Matt. You did this through him. You did this through him. It was all you. It was all you, not him. When that happens in heaven, it is such a party of thanksgiving. And I look forward to that day and I realize that there are those that when they pull out the book of life, their name's not gonna be in it and they're gonna be cast out, which is what's getting ready to happen here in Nehemiah. I don't want that one. I want them to come in. But to come in means surrender. It means to say, here I am. I'm coming with nothing. I expect nothing except you and what you offer. For those of us who know him, maybe we've had it good and we've had some good Thanksgiving and things are going well, I would encourage you to to come alongside and encourage others to give thanks, to support them, to love them, to ask them to walk with him. Not because look at everything I've done and how righteous I've been and how it's all worked out, but to look at them and say, look at all that God has done. And I don't deserve any of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to cover a lot, three chapters of Nehemiah, but I thank you that the flow of this book is so glorious, that it's such a picture of what it looks like to have people surrendered to you. Lord, I thank you for your graciousness and your mercy as we looked at last week, that we don't deserve that, that when we look at where we are and we acknowledge the fact that we're where we are because of our sin. That's, that's plural, because if humanity's sin, we're where we are. But we can know that this isn't our home. We're not stuck here. We have a home that you're preparing for us if we know you. And so, Father, if there's anyone who has not surrendered to you, if there's anyone who has not signed and said, I seal my name, I surrender, God, you can hold me accountable. I, I give you permission to bring people into my life to help me know you and walk with you. If they have not asked you to come in by faith, not by works, by faith to forgive them, I pray they would ask you to do that and you say you will. And they can have confidence, just like the people of God had confidence. And they can give thanks right where they are this morning. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we would take seriously what we see the people doing here in Nehemiah. That we would allow you to bring the revival in our heart to give thanks. To smile, to love you, to to be your people, even though we're still stuck in this world of slavery. That we would organize and order our lives in such a way that regardless of what the world throws at us, we are going to honor you. And Lord, I thank you for those that are doing that. I thank you for those that have gone out from our church and those who have stayed here to live 
simple, obedient, faithful, God-fearing, proclaiming lives. And we, we give you the praise. Amen.